as we study the book of Jude, Jude has sounded the alarm that there are pretenders in the church. They've crept into our midst, Lord, and they're teaching false doctrine. And uh, we live in pretty uh, precarious times as far as the church goes, Lord. And, and you, we know this because uh, we see a lot and hear a lot of false teaching. Uh, we see a lot of churches that are doing things that aren't within your word. And Lord, we're not, it's not our job to judge those churches, but it is our job to protect ourselves, Lord. And uh, we know you protect your flock. And, and so, Lord, we just ask that uh, you help us to be the people who can contend for the faith, Lord. And we can only do that, we know, as we study your word uh, verse by verse, uh, uh, not just here at church on Sunday, but on our own. And so, Lord, we just ask you to be the kind of uh, students of the word that uh, we can recognize these false teachers, Lord, that we can warn people about these false teachers and that we can contend for the faith as you call us to do. So I ask today, Lord, that by the power of your Holy Spirit that you just bless this lesson that we have in Jude. And uh, we know you're going to do that. Uh, uh, so we just thank you for what we're going to hear from you today. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. During the Trojan Wars uh, back in uh, around 1200 B.C., the Greeks had attacked the city of Troy, and they had laid siege to it for 10 years, and they couldn't penetrate the walls, and the people were uh, full of resolve in, in the city of Troy, and they wouldn't give in, and, and so it almost looked like the Greeks would never defeat uh, the Troys, uh, the Trojans. And so uh, what the Greeks did, they built what we know as the Trojan horse, and they built the horse, and uh, they got in their ships and they sailed away and the city of Troy thought they had defeated the Greeks and they began to celebrate. Well, the, the Trojans had, I mean, the Greeks had built a little secret compartment in the Trojan horse where they hid a special, a, a unit of special forces. And while the Trojans were celebrating their great victory, they decided to bring the Trojan horse into the city. And they brought the Trojan horse into the city and they shut and locked their gates for the night. And then this, when, after they had celebrated and gotten drunk and gone to bed, uh, this special unit of Greek soldiers came out of the horse. They opened the gates. And uh, during the cover of night, the Greek army had sailed back into the city. And they came into the city and made quick work of the, of the Trojans as they destroyed them. Now... Uh, why do I tell you that story? Because it gives us a great picture, I believe, of what's happening in the church today. The church has become apostate, and, and the, it hasn't become apostate from frontal assaults of the devil. I mean, the devil knows that the more he attacks the church through persecution, the more the church grows. So he's changed his strategy. And the way his, his strategy now is, is to bring in these Trojan horses into our midst, they've crept into our church, and they attempt to change the unchangeable word uh, and so that they can make disciples not after the Lord, but after themselves. I was talking to Debbie LeBlanc last week. She was in town, and she was telling me about a situation at her own church in Denver, uh, a very large church uh, that she started going to when she first went there because the pastor there... Uh, taught through the Bible verse by verse, just like we do here. And she was really excited. She said his doctrine was sound and everything was going good until he got sick. And once he got sick, 
the elders brought in a, a young, good-looking guy, and and uh, he started preaching through the uh, preaching. Seemingly, uh, he's pr preached topically, but uh, he was really charismatic, and the church was growing. You know, the same reason our church grows. I mean, good-looking young guy. You know, you, get, you know, you get the picture here. But anyway, the church the church was growing, and and uh, everything seemed fine. And then she met the guy and been to talk to him about some of his doctrine because there's some concerns she has on certain areas that she's really big on. Like, uh, do you do you believe that God still has a plan for Israel, or or do you believe that uh, in replacement theology? Well, this guy believed in replacement theology, so that really bothered her. Then she asked him what he believed about creation, and he said that he doesn't believe in a literal Adam. Uh, he doesn't believe in a literal seven-day creation. He, and uh, she said, well, you know, how, how can you not believe that? And you're not, you're not telling people that when you're teaching. And he said, no, I'm not going to get into that because that's, that's not a major issue. It's only a peripheral issue. It's a small issue, and we shouldn't break fellowship over issues like that. Well, I've got news for this guy. The, what you believe about creation is a very big issue. I mean, if you don't believe that there's a literal atom, then you, that means you believe in evolution. You understand what you're saying. You're saying that somehow death was in this world before Adam came. So really you don't believe in the fall because, because if death was already in the world, what happened at the fall? Well, death entered into the world because of the fall. And the reason Christ died for us is because the wages of sin is death. But if God had brought death into the world before that, then, then death was there before the wages of sin was death. And so it, it, it undercuts not only uh, a lot of other areas of the uh, Bible, but it basically undercuts the gospel itself. So it is a major issue. And so, uh, you know, here's this guy that uh, is has come into the church and now he is the pastor of the church. They forced the other guy out and she's really disturbed about that and understand that because she studies the word and she wants the word to be taught accurately and true. So, so uh, anyway, uh, the Bible, the, the Bible is, is not something that changes. The Bible is the living, never changing truth of God. Remember what Jude told us in verse number three of this, this book. He says here, he says that, that the word was delivered to us once and for all uh, by the prophets and the apostles. It was delivered to the saints once and for all. And the Bible has the super, if we take it and believe it as it is, it has the supernatural power to change us into the image of Jesus Christ. But only if we take it, every word, by faith, it's the, as, the, as, as it says in the Bible about itself, the Bible is the word of God that endureth forever. It never changes. I mean, things are added to the Bible as we go from Genesis to Revelation. But once we get to Revelation, you don't add or subtract or take away from anything that's said. And if anyone does that, if anyone tries to change the the plain interpretation of this word, the literal interpretation of this word, then they are a false teacher. They're a Trojan horse, and there are a lot of Trojan horses in uh, the church. Now, so how do we expose these guys? I mean, how, how do we, how do we uh, 
know that someone's a true? How do you know I'm a true teacher? I mean, how do you know someone is a false teacher or someone is a true teacher? Well, you've got to study the word yourself. I mean, you've got to examine that teacher carefully. That's what Debbie was trying to do when she was talking to her pastor. She wanted to know who this new guy was and what he truly believed if she was going to stay at that church once he became pastor. Think about it. If the Trojans had really looked at that Trojan horse and they had examined it carefully, they would have seen cracks somewhere. And if they had really looked at it carefully, they should have suspected that the Greeks had left it there for sinister purposes. But they didn't examine it. They just took it in and without any examination. And so they were destroyed. And that's a picture, I believe, of what's happening to the church today. So I think the best way to expose a false teacher is to examine what they believe about the word. And, and you, you know, again, as I said before, in order to do that, you yourself have to be in the word. But now here's the problem. Here's the problem. And the same problem with this pastor Debbie has. They, a lot of them teach topically. A lot of them never get into the word of God. They teach so little of the word of God that you've got to really be on your toes to figure out whether or not they're true teachers or whether or not they're false teachers. But what Jude is going to do now in the rest of this book or in the next few verses, uh, even past what we get into today, Jude is going to show us some other ways to spot these guys or spot these women. And they're pretty obvious. I mean, you ought to be able to spot them. If, remember what John told us in, in, uh, uh, second, in 1 John? He told us in chapter 2 that little children, you have the anointing and you know all things. If you've been born again, you ought to be able to spot these guys. You ought to be able to distinguish between a true teacher and a false teacher. But he's going to show us some other ways here. Look at, look at verse number 8. And, and look at, here's how you... You can spot them. He says, likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh. They reject authority and they speak evil of dignitaries. So he actually here, he gives you four ways. Look at the verse there again. He gives you four ways to spot these Trojan horses. Number one, they're dreamers. That's number one. Number two, they defile the flesh. Number three, they reject authority. And number four, they speak evil of dignitaries. Well, first of all, they're dreamers. Now, if you've got the King James Version, anybody reading the King James today? You have the King James Version, I believe it says filthy dreamers. Is that right? And, and, and that, that might apply, but I don't think that's what Jude is actually saying there. I mean, when you think of a filthy dreamer, what do you think of? You think of some guy who has filthy dreams. A guy who dreams about uh, or has pornographic dreams. Someone like that. That's, that's what you would think of when you think of a filthy dreamer. But that's, I don't think that's what Jude's saying in context here at all. If you look at your King James Version, if you're looking at the King James, the word filthy is in italics. And we know as Bible students, when we see the word in italics, what's that tell us? It's not there in the original Greek. The translators have put it in there. So I would take that out. And I would simply say 
They are dreamers. They're dreamers. So what does Jude mean when they're dreamers? What he means is they live in a dream world. They don't live and walk in reality. Their theology is not based upon a real world, upon a real physical world, and upon a real spiritual world. And, and these are the guys, and this is who I think he's talking about here, these are the guys who bring what we call liberalism into the church, humanism into the church. They don't preach the biblical gospel, they preach what we call the social gospel. You know what the social gospel is? That basically says that, that uh, it denies the depravity of mankind. It says that people are basically good. And if you'll just treat them good and everybody will be good and act good. And if you'll help the poor and feed the poor, then that will make the poor good people. In other words, all you have to do is take care of the social needs of a society and that society becomes a good society. And that gospel became very, very popular in the early 1900s. I mean, it was pretty much rampant across the United States. This idea that somehow we could usher in the millennium through by treating people great and spending money on people. You hear that in politics now. I remember Obama saying, you know, the only problem with ISIS is that they don't have jobs. You give these guys jobs and they, they'll be good people. They, they just need jobs or send them welfare checks and they'll be good people. Well, you look at the Palestinians and all the welfare money we're sending them and all the money they get from around the world and that hasn't made them good people. That doesn't make Americans good people. That doesn't make anybody good people. You need your heart changed. You need, what did Jesus say to Nicodemus? You must be born again. And so the social gospel ignores this necessity of the new birth and somehow says that, you know, we can, we can make things good and that we don't even need Jesus to come back because all we need is to treat people right and, and everything uh, will be dandy. Well, you know, I believe in treating people right. I believe in helping the poor. I think that's a good thing and I think it's part of the, part of the church's job to do that. But we're not going to make people good if all we do is hand them out food and all we do is meet their physical need. We're not going to change anything in this world. We have to change hearts and the heart, hearts can only be changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the second way you can recognize these guys, you can recognize them or, and girls because they defile the flesh. You know, whenever I hear some 300 pound preacher up on the stage, jumping up and down saying, if you'll make Jesus Lord of your whole life, I mean, if you don't make Jesus Lord of your whole life, then he's not Lord at all. And I'm like, dude, man, look at yourself. He's certainly not Lord of your whole life. And so I, I, don't, I won't listen to somebody like that. And I know that they're a false teacher. When I hear about some televangelist who's shacked up in a hotel in Rome with a, a female televangelist. When I hear about that, man, I don't want anything to do with somebody like that. I'm talking about a real story here. I'm not going to name names, but I'm talking about a real story. When I hear about uh, the head of a major so-called Christian network giving hush money to his homosexual lover so he won't tell everybody about his love affair 
with his homosexual, then I don't want anything to do. When that guy starts talking about the Bible, I'm not going to listen to that guy because I know he's a false teacher. Look, we all got a few extra pounds. I'm not saying you, you're not saved if you, if you got some extra pounds or I'd be in bad shape. But, and we're all capable of falling morally. All of us are. But when we stand up and we are proclaiming the word of God and we're living in that kind of lifestyle, then there's something wrong. You know what we are? We're hypocrites. And a hypocrite is a false teacher. They're not real teachers. So you can spot them. And, and then in the third, if you look back at your text, the third way he says we can spot these guys is that they reject authority. They reject authority. And when they reject authority, who are they really rejecting? They're rejecting the authority of God because we're told in Romans chapter 13 that there is no governing authority that does not come from God. All authority comes from God. So when you see preachers who are advocating anarchy in any form or fashion, they're false teachers. They're false teachers. I don't care if they're right wing or if they're left wing. If they're advocating anarchy, they are false teachers. You are some right wing people that say we ought to bring down the government. We ought to, we ought to you know, set bombs on the Capitol. They're not true teachers. On the other side of the fence, when I see these guys walking hand in hand with these uh, protesters in these cities and then these protesters are burning these cities down and shooting down policemen. I don't want, those are not true teachers of the word of God. They are false teachers because they reject authority. And then the, and then the fourth one, look at the fourth one that he gives us right here. They speak evil of dignitaries. Let me give you the literal translation there. They blaspheme the glorious ones. They blaspheme the glorious ones. What, what, what does he mean by that? He's not talking about blaspheming God. Obviously, if somebody blasphemes God, then they're, they're a false teacher. I mean, you'd have to be stupid not to know that. But these guys blaspheme the glorious ones. Who are the glorious ones he's speaking of there? He's speaking of angels. He's speaking of angels. When you hear some hyper- charismatic preacher saying, I'm stomping on the devil. I'm stomping on the devil. Man, that guy's a false teacher. I can tell you right now, he's a false teacher. When you hear someone say, Satan, I bind you in the name of Jesus. That guy's a false teacher. I'm telling you right now, they're false teachers. And at, I almost laugh when I hear this kind of stuff. And, and, I know that they don't have the power to bind Satan. I know that because the word of God tells me they don't have the power to bind Satan. And what they're doing, they're blaspheming Satan. Well, now you say, well, that's not a bad thing to blaspheme Satan. Blaspheming in the sense they're speaking false about Satan. It doesn't necessarily mean that's a good thing or a bad thing. But when you blaspheme Satan, you're speaking falsely about Satan. If you speak falsely about God, that's a terrible thing to do. If you speak falsely about Satan, you know, I mean, that's not going to get you in hell, but that does kind of say that you're a false teacher. Because I can tell you one thing, the Bible says the Satan will not be bound 
When is Satan going to get bound? Satan will be bound at the end of the Great Tribulation. So read your Bible. He doesn't get bound before then. So when somebody's saying, I'm binding Satan, they don't understand what they're talking about. They don't understand who Satan is. I mean, Satan is not Casper the Friendly Ghost. <laughs> Satan, Satan is the mo one of the few, he's in a category of a few, the, of, of the few greatest angels, most powerful angels on this earth. He has more power. The only one who surpasses him in power is Jesus Christ himself. So these guys don't have that kind of power. So they're false teachers when they're saying that they're binding Satan. They can't bind Satan. Well, it seems that they're, you know, they're, they're, they're doing supernatural things. Let me tell you why they're doing supernatural things. And I believe they are doing supernatural things. Because they're on Satan's side. Satan's using them to dupe uh, the church. To dupe people who call themselves Christians. And I think it's the epitome of pride. See, that's what I see in this when I see it happening. It's, it's the epitome of pride that these false teacher, teachers speak to Satan as if he's, he's some sort of uh, uh, school child, you know, little kid or something that they can bully. Man, I, I tell you what, I don't think you need to mess with Satan. I mean, the Bible says resist Satan and he will flee from you. I mean, how do we resist him? We resist him with the word. We resist him by not listening to his accusations. We resist him with the truth. Satan is the accuser. He lies and he brings lies at us. He brings evil thoughts at us. And we can resist that and he will have to leave us. He will flee from us. He knows he's wasted his time. If you bring the truth up and you stand on the truth, then he knows he has no ground. He, he can't take any ground in your life. And so he flees from you. But you mess with Satan... You go on the attack against Satan, you, you might get yourself into some serious trouble. Let me just warn you, you're messing with someone, you, you don't really understand just how powerful he is. I mean, demons are powerful. Demons are very powerful beings. I love that humorous story over in the book of Acts. Go with me to the book of Acts, to chapter 19. Probably know exactly where I'm heading. In the book of Acts, chapter number 19, look down at verse number 11. Acts 19, verse 11 says, Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. You know what? I don't, I don't put it past God working unusual miracles today. I'm not a cessationist. But I've yet to meet anybody like Paul walking this earth myself. Billy Graham was a pretty great guy. But I never heard him once binding, any, binding Satan. If there was anybody who could have given Satan a fight from a human standpoint, it was someone like him. And there, maybe there are a few other guys like that. But Paul was a pretty powerful guy. I mean, let me show you how powerful he was. So that even handkerchiefs or aprons from Paul were brought from his body uh, to the sick and the diseases left them and these evil spirits went out of them. That's pretty powerful. And Paul set up an 800 number <laughs> and he sold those handkerchiefs for $19.95. And, and if you ordered one right, then he would give you two for $19.95. Can 
Can you believe people fall for that kind of stuff? I mean, but anyway, and the diseases left them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists who had been trying to cast out these demons all their life saw Paul doing this, and they said, wow, we can do this too. We can bind, bind these demons. We can cast these demons out. So they took it upon themselves to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. And I've heard people say, oh, if you just call on the name of the Lord Jesus, you can cast out demons. No, let me tell you something. When your handkerchiefs, you can take, go to your hospital with your handkerchiefs and people will, will get up from the, from the bed and they're not sick anymore, then you go cast out some demons because you got that kind of power. But these guys had been doing this a long time. And they said, wow, we've never really been successful. We're actually seeing demons cast out. We're going to do this too. And so some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call on the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exercise you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. They're really messed up. Also, there were seven sons with them of the Eskibi, the Jewish chief priest, who did so. I mean, they said, man, we got it now. We got the formula. It is not a formula. It is the power of Jesus Christ. The demons are more powerful than you will. No, I'm not going to say than you will ever be. Let me tell you something. You will be more powerful than Satan when you are glorified. But you're not there yet. But, but demons, demons are more powerful than any human being on earth. And look at what happens. There were seven sons of the Scavia, the Jewish chief priest, who did so. And watch this. The evil spirit, just one demon. This is one demon. This isn't Satan. This is one demon. Answered and said, Jesus, I know. And Paul, I know. But who are you? Now I'm going to kick your butt. <laughs> then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, prevailed against them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. I mean, to me, that is hilarious. I, can you see the picture? The seven guys, man, they're going to cast out this demon, and boy, they're running away naked and wounded. Look, it's not healthy to run around blaspheming angels. By acting like somehow like you're greater than them. Paul understood that Christ is greater than them. And Paul says, it's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now that tells me, if I'm to cast out demons, I do believe that believers can cast out demons. But who is going to direct that action? Do I just go out and okay today like these guys, seven guys did? I heard about people cast out demons, and I'm going to go do that myself because all it is, it's a formula. You name the name of Jesus, and you can cast out a demon. No, it's not a formula. It's not a certain a group, set of words that you say that gives you the power to cast out demons. You cast out demons by the power of God, by the direction of God. And so if God directs you to cast out demons, go for it. But be sure he does, because if, if, if you're not a false teacher, then you're going to go away naked and wounded. I can tell you that right now. Now, why do the false teachers get away with it? How come they getting away with saying, I bind you, Satan. I'm going to stomp on Satan. How, how are they getting away with that? Because they are of Satan. 
And a house divided against itself will fall, and Satan knows that. And so he's using these guys to dupe people. So he's going to let them go right on doing what they're doing. But anyway, Satan is not to be trifled with. And let me show you. He, Jude shows you. Jude shows you how powerful he is. Look down at verse number 9 of chapter, back to Jude. Chapter, well, there's oh, no chapter. So verse number 9 of the book of Jude, and listen to what he says. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, with Satan, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now where did Jude get that? What verse and chapter did he get that from? Where did he come up with this story? Now, I believe that this part of the Bible is as inspired as the rest of the Bible. So I believe it's true, but I would be real curious where Jude got this story. I mean, to me, this is one of the myster most mysterious passages in the entire Bible. I mean, you got Michael the archangel wrestling with the devil over the body of Moses. And Satan who is, it, Satan is the arch enemy of God. And when Michael is wrestling with him, he doesn't, he dares not to degrade his dignity, Satan's dignity. I mean, all he will do is turn to the Lord and say, the Lord rebuke you. That's fascinating to me. And what's even more fascinating is that when Moses died, who buried Moses? Do you remember? Who buried Moses? Jo Joshua? The people? God buried Moses. God buried Moses. Go with me over to Deuteronomy. Hold your place there in Jude. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 5 and look down. I'm sorry, Deuteronomy 34. Well, we won't find it in chapter 5. Deuteronomy 34. And look down at, look down at verse number 5. Verse number 5. We're going to see who buried him. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. Well, why does he say according to the word of the Lord? Because Mo God said, Moses, you're going to die. You're not going into the promised land. So that was according to the word of the Lord. And he, who's the he? The Lord. It's capitalized because that pronoun we know refers to the Lord. And he buried him in the valley, in a valley. He doesn't tell us which valley. In the land of Moed opposite Beth Peor. So you know the general area where he was buried, but we don't know exactly where he was buried. But no one knows his grave to this day. So when whoever finished this line, because Moses couldn't have wrote this part himself, he did write Deuteronomy, but not this part. Probably Joshua wrote this. Nobody knew his grave to this day. Why did God bury Moses? Because he didn't want to know anyone to know where Moses was buried. And 
Why didn't he want anyone to know where Moses was buried? I can tell you why, because you know what people would have done if they had knew where Moses was, was buried? I mean, you look at the rest of this text, and they weeped and mourned for 40 days. They loved Moses. They, all, they in, to some degree, worshipped Moses. And the only reason they didn't worship Moses totally, they didn't sell out totally for Moses, is because they knew him well enough to not worship him. And they knew he had some faults. But once you, he's buried, and once there's a shrine erected, then they were going to go and they were going to worship him. And God knew that. And so God didn't tell them where he buried uh, Moses. But the interesting thing is, another interesting thing in this text is, or in this story is, that even though no man knew where Moses was buried, Satan knew exactly where God buried him. And apparently he came to get the body. And he fought with Michael. That word contend is wrestle. He wrestled with Michael. Can you see these two, the two top two angels, the most powerful angels in existence, wrestling over the body of Moses? Well, in one of the apocryphal books, and don't put me a note in here. Don't preach it from the apocrypha. I'm not preaching from the apocrypha. I'm going to tell you a story here. Okay, but in one of the apocryphal books, it's called the Assumption of Moses. It was written in 100 B.C. And in the Assumption of Moses, it tells this story. Actually, it says in there, this was written before Jude wrote his book. It says in there that Michael said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. So a lot of people believe that Jude got his information about the burial of Moses from the book, The Assumption of Moses. Now, I wouldn't recommend The Assumption of Moses under any terms because there's stuff in there that's not, not true. It doesn't line up with the Bible, no more than I would recommend the book of Enoch. But we're going to see later on that Jude, maybe, possibly, probably, quotes from the book of Enoch. That's just really interesting to me, that he was reading these apocryphal uh, sources, and he got some of his information from these sources. That tells you one thing to me, that you can get truth from reading secular sources or sources, extra-biblical sources. So, uh, but you got to be really sharp on your toes to read that truth or to read those kind of sources because there's also error in those sources. Am I making the point there? But there's a good chance that's where he got the story because the story pretty much lines up with what you would think it would be. What the author of the Assumption of Moses said, here was the story. God buried, used Michael, his agent. So really it was God burying Moses, and he used Michael, his agent, to bury Moses. Well, Satan found out about it, knew where it was happening, and he came and he confronted Michael, and he said, I demand that you give me the body of Moses. Because Moses is a murderer. Did Moses murder anybody? He sure did. Moses is a sinner. Was Moses a sinner? He sure was. And he says, I am the prince of this world. I have the right to Moses's body. And Michael and he said, no, you're not getting that body. And they wrestled over the body. And Michael cried out to the Lord, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord or cried out to Satan to the Lord. The Lord rebuke you. And the Lord stopped the fight 
and Satan was forced to leave, and Michael hid and buried the body. Now, is that story the, the actual factual truth? I'm not sure. I think it's very interesting that, that uh, uh, Jude actually quotes to some degree from that book, but uh, we, this is what we do know is true. We do know that Satan didn't get the body. We do know that Satan tried to get the body. How do we know Satan didn't get the body? Because on the Mount of Transfiguration, I see Moses transfigured there in his glorified body, which is his, his resurrected body. And so we know he didn't get it. But that's, you know, that's, that's not the point here. Here's the point. Regardless of what happened in this dispute, here's the lesson. Even the archangel Michael had enough respect for Satan that uh, unlike these arrogant preachers who think they're somehow greater than Satan, he simply said, the Lord rebuke you. He did not degradate in any form or fashion the glory of Satan. He understood his glory. He understood his power. And when you see someone degradating the glory of Satan by saying, I'm stomping on you or I'm going to bind you, Look, I'm not a Satan fan in any form or fashion. We hate Satan. Satan hates us. But he is one of God's glorious creatures. And he is the most powerful being on this earth, tied with Michael, outside of Jesus Christ. And he's, you know, Christ's power is infinite, so I'm not worried about Satan. And I know that we can, we can have victory over Satan if we don't give him strongholds in our life. But we... We need to recognize the fact that he is a very powerful being. All right, so going back to Jude, again, he says, even in verse number nine, he said, yet Michael, the archangel, and contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dare not bring against him a reviling accusation, accusation but said, the Lord rebuke you. All right, so... How do we spot these Trojan horses? How do we spot them? And, and uh, we need to be able to do that. Because I believe they have just about taken over the church. I'm not talking about Calvary Chapel, but I'm talking about you look around elsewhere. What's Jude, what's Jude showing us about this so far? He's given us these characteristics of these false teachers. First of all, he says they're, they're evil men, ungodly men, who have crept into the church, and they come in, when he says crept in, that means they come in. They don't come in blaspheming God. They don't come in uh, uh, with blatant heresies. They have heretical views, but they kind of hide those away until they think they are in control of things. And so they teach in a way that it's really hard to spot their heresies. And, and that's the way some of them come in. Others are pretty blatant about they, they Jude tells us in an earlier verse, they turn the grace of God. Look, I'm, I was looking for the verse there, but anyway, they turn the grace of God into licentiousness. In other words, they say, hey, you're not under law, you're under grace. Uh, now you just do anything you want to do. 
Look, I believe you can do anything you want to do if you're a born again believer, but what you want to do is change. You do have moral restraints because you've been changed. You're now a moral person. You have the the, uh, divine nature. You have the new nature of Christ. And so you want to to live morally. It's who you are. But, But they come in and say, well, you know, everything goes because you're under grace. And, and they fool a lot of people and people are attracted to that because they think they've got their ticket to heaven and then they just, they live immorally. Well, if you want to live immorally, you're not saved. And so they dupe a lot of people and, and they end up in hell because they think they're saved because they're under grace when they haven't been changed to, to moral creatures. They're still immoral, living immorally. The flip side of that are the legalists who come in and say, you got to live morally. You got to suck it up and do your best and live morally. And so those guys have come in and they have really permeated the church. They give you a list of do's and they give you a list of don'ts. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't fool around, don't hang out with girls who do. I mean, they give you this list and, and as long as you keep that list, then you're saved. If you don't keep that list, then you lose your salvation. And they're, they're legalists. And, 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 and we don't live morally because we're under law, we live morally because the law is part of who we are. And so there's a big difference. So you got two sides of the pendulum and both of these are error. You've got the lewdness on one side and you've got the legalism on the other side. So when you see that, that's a false teacher. And then uh, you know that their, their uh, doctrine is wrong. And I'll tell you the other way. As far as doctrine goes, the way you can spot these guys, and we went over this last time, they deny or degradate, degradate the deity of Jesus Christ. You can spot them. I mean, the Mormons are easy to spot. The Jehovah's Witnesses are easy to spot. But there's a lot of evangelicals who also uh, deny in some ways the deity of Jesus Christ. He's somehow a lesser God. He's not really God Almighty. And so those are false teachers. Those are Trojan horses in our midst. And then he's given us these other ways to spot these guys today. They they live in a dream world, far from reality. Uh, They they live in moral lives themselves. I mean, when you see someone up proclaiming the word of God and they're living in an immoral life and they live it until they get caught. Now, once they're caught, you hear those words, I have sinned. And then they, want, they go back into the ministry and they're still the heretic they were before when they were living that immoral life. Don't you see? They're duping people. And so they live immoral and carnal lives. They don't have respect for authorities and they blaspheme those who are, are blaspheme higher powers. They act as if they're so prideful, they act as if they have power over the demonic world. They have power over Satan. No, they are of Satan. That's why they seem to have these powers. So uh, they're pretty easy to spot. I'll tell you how you spot them. You want to learn how to spot them? Watch TV. Watch TV preachers because those are the characters of these guys. Yeah, just almost every TV preacher, I'll, there's a few exceptions. They're, they're, they're blatant heretics, and you ought to be able to spot them. But people l- let them into their homes. 
They come into their homes on those televisions. They come in and they let them in. They let them in with their heresies. They let them in with their, their, their uh, immorality. They send them money. I just, it's just beyond me that a Christian person would send money to, I'm not going to name him, or to her. I'm, but it's just, it's, it's beyond me that people would do that. But in the evangelical circles, these guys are rare, right? No, they're not rare. It's not just the TV preachers. Uh, I saw a poll taken years ago back in the excellent late 20th century of evangelical pastors from uh, various denominations across the United States. And let me give you some of the results. 48% of the pastor surveys, now these are evangelical Protestant pastors, 48% surveyed said that they did not believe that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant word of God to be taken literally. 48% don't believe in the literal Bible. 25% reject the atonement. There's no need for the atonement. They're universalists. They say always lead to heaven. And you, you hear that of a lot of evangelical pastors if you press them. You see them press when, they, when you see a pastor interviewed on CNN, look out. They're about to give in. And when they ask them, you don't believe Muslims are going to go, well, God is love. And God is going to let everybody into heaven. You know, he has, there's all sorts of ways to get into heaven. Because God is so good and God is love. Well, God is love and God is good. And God wishes that none should perish. But everybody's not going to make it to heaven. There's no other name under heaven whereby man can be saved except the name of Jesus Christ. That's the only way. And... Going on with this poll, the same number don't believe in the literal physical, 25% don't believe in the literal physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. 27% don't believe in the literal second coming of Jesus Christ. And I think that percentage is a lot higher because there's a lot of what we call all millennials. We'll talk about that when we get into the book of Revelation. All millennials don't believe in a literal uh, tribulation. They don't believe in a literal second coming. They believe we're going to usher this thing in through our good works. We're making everybody in the world Christian. Is that what's happening in the world? You know, look, don't believe these surveys that tell you this world is becoming more and more Christian every day. That is not true. You got to really have your head in, your, in, the, in the sand. <laughs> to, to, uh, man, I got to be careful here. <laughs> You got to really have your head in the sand to believe that. Goodness. I should have run that marathon this morning before I came over here. <laughs> less than 50%, less than 50% believe in a young earth and a literal seven day creation. And people say that's not a problem. I can fellowship with somebody who believes in. In, in, in evolution, man, I explained to you that earlier. You can't, you can't believe that the, that the Genesis creation account is a lie and then believe that the gospel is the truth. That doesn't work because they got to go one, they go hand in hand. You've got to have the literal fall of Adam, a human being who's in the gene genealogy of Jesus Christ. Look in Luke chapter 3. If Adam's not real, then is Jesus real? 
I mean, they're all real. They're literal people. Adam was a literal man. He was the first Adam. Jesus is the second Adam. Adam had to fall. He had to fall out of glory. There was no evolved Adam through death after death after death. Adam was created by God himself. Or God's a liar and the word's a lie. And if you believe that, and less than half the pastors believe that, now they'll get up here and talk about the gospel and they'll talk about Jesus and everything will sound sound. But that if you really dig into what they believe, there's going to be a lot of areas where they have heretical views. So you have to believe in a literal creation, but less than 50% of pastors believe in, evangelical pastors believe in a young earth and a literal, literal seven-day creation. Now, I tried to find a more recent poll of pastors uh, to see what they really believe, but I couldn't find one. I looked hard for it, uh, but I uh, couldn't find one. But I got I to gotta tell you what I believe. I got to believe those percentages are much higher today, or at least somewhat higher today than they were back then. There are a lot of pastors, and really you can just bring it down to one, one question. What do you believe about this word? Is this the literal, inerrant word of God to be taken as God has given it to us? All 66 books. My answer to that question is yes. But I don't think there would be many pastors today, uh, especially outside of Calvary Chapel, outside maybe the Southern Baptist, that would say that is true. You go to a lot of the mainstream denominations today, and most pastors do not believe that this is all, that Proverbs is the word of God. That's just wisdom stuff. That's not written. The word of God. You can't take that as the word of God. No, that is the word of God, just like Jude is the word of God, just like Genesis is the word of God, just like Matthew is the word of God. And so that's scary. That's scary to me because it tells me that the church is becoming more and more apostate by the day. And how is this happening? You know, you can blame those false teachers. But you know what God does when his people don't do what they're supposed to do? He sends them a delusion. He sends them what they want to hear. He sends them to places that tickle their ears all the way to hell. So, what do we do? Let me tell you what. I can't do it for you. The good thing about being a pastor and that teaches verse by verse through the Bible, I'm always in the Bible. That's my job. I mean, I, I, that's my, the, the privilege I have. That's, that's great for me because, I, because I'm not disciplined enough to be in this word like I should be if I wasn't forced to be in it every week, all week. But you guys, you guys have to discipline yourself. If you don't stay in this word, you're going to get duped. You're going to get duped. You need to be a Berean. You need to be one who studies this word for yourself. As, as John said in 1 John chapter 2, you have an anointing. You, you know all, because you have that anointing, little children, you know all things. You just have to put that anointing to use. 
You need to be in the Word. And I believe most of you are in the Word enough, you know, that you understand what I'm saying here today. But God wants us to take us past just being able to defend ourselves against apostate preachers. He wants us to be able to contend for the faith. What's Jude's call in this book? Brothers, brethren, contend for the faith. Fight, wrestle. Just like Michael wrestled with Satan for the body of Moses, we need to be wrestling with the devil for the truth of this word. We need to fight and contend for the truth of this word. You can't do that if you don't study this word. And it goes beyond studying this word. Let me tell you what else you have to do. You have to believe this word. You have to believe that every word of this is God-breathed. Every word of this is given to us by the Lord. I believe that with all my heart. Let me tell you what. If you believe it, you'll study it. If I really believe this is God's word to me, I'm going to study God's word. And I do believe that. And I believe most of you believe that. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that through, by your grace, you chose to give us your holy word. Lord, this love letter of 66 books written to us, if if we'll just take the time to read it and study it and believe it, Lord. Lord, faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. When we get in the word, Lord, we, we have so much faith. We have so much strength. Empowered by your Holy Spirit, Lord, we become the kind of warriors you want us to be in this world, contending for your, for your word. Lord, you want us to be the people who study to show us ourselves approved, Lord, so that we can give every man an answer when they ask us the reason for the faith that is within us. Lord, we just ask again that you encourage us, empower us, and strengthen us to contend for the faith. Lord, we ask that in Christ's name. Amen.